Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts, and today, in the awesomeness that is NOLA Gold Rugby, uh, they've continued to uh, produce uh, officials, and eventually they will produce players to come on the Lineouts uh, podcast. So, uh, as always, uh, Lineouts isn't just MLR stuff. It's where we do interesting things, but... We also want to hear specifically from, you know, coaches, staff, and players involved with MLR. So, uh, former Metropolis head coach, now NOLA Gold head coach, Nathan Osborne is here with us today. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Uh, pretty well. Thank you for uh, coming on. So, I'm, I'm doing great. It's a, you know, it's a rugby day, so yeah. every day is a... Every day is a rugby day. Sometimes people yeah. don't understand that. <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream for sure. Do rugby yeah, all the so, time. So you're from Australia. Uh, uh, which part? I think you went to high school in Canberra? I did. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, so I grew up in a little country town called Queanbeyan, which is about half an hour out of Canberra. So yeah, that's where I ended up going to high school uh, and played a fair chunk of rugby in Canberra as well. Nice. Uh, when did you start playing rugby? I started when I was five. I started playing rugby league. My dad was a uh, rugby league star back in the day and a rugby league coach. So uh, me and my brother started playing when we were five, uh, playing league. And then once I went to school uh, at St. Edmunds College, which is a big rugby union school in Australia, uh, that's when I started about 12. I started playing both uh, until I was about 17. And then just straight rugby from there. haven't played league since. So, oh, nice. Yeah. So sometimes people refer to league as 13 aside, and I get really confused. Yeah. Because yeah. league is league is different. League's and different. I, I just remember, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, 15s. I was like, I've never heard of 13s. It's like, who plays 13s? I've, you know, I know fives from the beach. Yep. And tens. And apparently there's a tournament for the London Nines. I have no idea what that's about, but I think yeah. it's code out there. Right. <laughs> so, but it's uh, it's a union code, whereas league is, I guess people refer to 13s. It's, it's not union. It's significantly different. It is. Yeah, it's a different game. It, uh, it was great playing both growing up. Uh, like I said, from the age of 12 to 17, I played both. So we trained... Monday, Wednesday's Union, Tuesday, Thursday, League, play Union Saturday, League Sunday. So that was, I mean, brutal for a young kid, but in terms of uh, developing rugby across the board, in terms of League's very much built on defence, Union's very much built on attack. So it was, it was really good to have both, a really good mixture uh, of both those going growing up and going through. So I really enjoyed both. Uh, but once I got to school and... Played in the first 15, uh, played for the Australian schoolboys. I realized that union was going to be the path for me to, you know, further my rugby. So that's why I just started playing rugby union after that for one. Then you played professionally. I, since, you know, the, uh, the beginnings of rugby union professionally are hard to find. I couldn't find that. Uh, yeah. 
it's but more so more so because just records on the internet for outside what seems outside of the United States just sometimes right. aren't computed into Wikipedia or ESPN Scrum, so you right. can't find certain things. Yeah. So ninety nine. So I finished school ninety eight. Uh, played Aussie schools. Went on a big tour. I came back. Moved to Sydney and played for Randwick. Uh, okay. And so I played for Randwick and uh, was part of the Waratahs Academy then as well. Uh, played Waratahs U20s uh, back then. And then uh, from there, I moved to Southern Districts for a couple of years. Uh, and that was a, a professional uh, time. Again, early in rugby, only became professional in 96. So this was really early days. So um, and then went home back to Canberra after that and uh Joined the Brum, joined up with the Brumbies training squads and played played a lot of B side for the Brumbies. So the runners they call it. Uh, never had any Super Rugby caps, which is you know always a disappointing thing for a young man. But at the same time, when you look at the Brumbies teams of those days, with the Larkhams and the Gregans and the Morlocks and the, all the great rugby players that were playing, it, it's understandable, you know. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then played played in the local comp there for a few years. Played for East, uh, which is the local club down there. Um, and back then, we were still getting paid to do that. Um, it was a little like I equivocated I, I to a little bit like the MLR. You know, you're not making a ton, ton of money, but you're making enough to train every day and work on your game. And uh, I was a personal trainer as well, so I'd, I'd work uh, nights as a personal trainer and train during the day, train rugby and... Uh, that's kind of how it all went. And uh, I thought back then the competition in Canberra was so good. The Brumbies did something that was new to Australian rugby. They were trying to bridge a gap. And so they said, okay, every player that is with the Brumbies uh, has to play for a local team as well. So uh, you, in any given week, you're playing with and against Wallabies and Brumbies. And the, the lower, local competition of seven teams became so really, really strong. And uh, for a while, I think it was the best competition in Australia for a, a long time until uh, Sydney got their act together again and then and picked their game up again. And Sydney's competition is probably a little better now. But back in the early 2000s, the Canberra competition, and that's why the Brumbies were so successful. They had so many local guys coming through and basically they had seven feeder clubs underneath them that were just feeding guys in. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's something – Really hard to picture here in the States because it's just, I mean, in the nineties, like during the super league, you know, guys were, they could say they weren't getting money, but people were getting money. I mean, not a lot. We're talking, you know, we're talking like 200 bucks, two or 300 bucks late nineties and, you know, more or less match fees and then job placement. Right. Right. And, and you still, for some, for some teams, they still do, there's still job placement because your networks are so good. Yeah. And that's how you, you know, build good amateur rugby teams. Cause sure. you know, you just, Hey, the guy has a college degree and he's an accountant. Um, right. There's a firm right over there. So get him a job, you know, sure. but um, then, uh, so you met your wife in the States or I did. in Australia. Yeah. Not nah, in the States. I came here to actually play for the Denver Barbarians in the Super League in uh, 2006. And okay. just had a three-month visa to come over and play a season. Uh, two weeks two weeks into that stay, I met my wife and never went home. 
much to the disappointment of my mum, <laughs> I just <laughs> stayed and just said, "All right, let's uh, let's give this a crack, and I'll uh, I'll stay here with you." And uh, we ended up getting married about six months later. Uh, and then when she was pregnant with our first daughter, Ella, uh, she's from Minnesota, so we moved back to Minnesota in two thousand late two thousand seven. Uh, I've been here nice. ever since. Yeah. I, I mean, some very similar, big similarities with you and uh, and the Rook Windsor's Sam down yeah. in uh, Houston because he's you know yeah. he's Australian. Uh, you know, went and he's played for him. Ulster and yeah, Queensland boy, same town yeah. as me, same yeah. little country town as me. He grew up in. Nice, so. not I didn't that I didn't know. Nice, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, so you have though, so you have two guys, you know good bit you know difference in age but you both met american women yep and that's how you got here <laughs> so <Right>. that's <laughs> i mean that's awesome you know yeah, yeah uh, cool. I mean, like i said same town he was born and bred in uh, just outside of queen bungendorf which same town and then uh both went to st edmunds he went to st edmunds as well uh he stayed in Canberra and played you know same sort of thing with the brumbies runners and a bunch of that stuff as well so pretty similar just He's a lot younger, which I'd like to be, but he, uh, <laughs> and he's a good player. He's a very good player. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually had the the opportunity to watch Houston practice uh, about a week ago. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I, I've said to some other people that I think that, I, you know, as the league expands, you know, cause he is, he's older than me. <laughs> I'm, I, I feel, I feel old. And then I see some of the kids that, the MLR that you guys are signing to play in the MLR, it makes me feel really old. Right. And, uh, but I, I just saw the way he ran drills with the backs. Yeah. And just the way things weren't, the time wasn't wasted. I think he's going to be, uh, you know, I think he's eventually going to be a much better coach than, you know, he was as a player. And, you know, those things are hard to do. Like yeah, a lot of players don't want to coach at all. They just, they want to play as long as possible and they don't want to learn like that extra aspect uh going forward you see it in the club game a lot uh because you know i think in the united states we have it we're it's very difficult for us to uh transition players to being um administrators coaches and officials and that's probably i don't understand i don't picture is but i've seen the small picture from now playing in three clubs and then there's like clubs with very strong club cultures like community aspects i think they have the the advantages and i don't i don't i can't really put my you know my finger on the pulse and what makes them different other than you know if i played at that club i'd want to play for them you know and i'd want to hang out with those guys whereas i've played with clubs we're that are basically just teams and I just don't, I don't want to hang out with any of those people. I don't want to do anything with those people. So, but those clubs that have that kind of culture, their players become coaches, officials, and uh, you know, presidents that, you know, grow the game. And we're, I think culturally in the United States, we're missing something because you have, you know, most clubs, at least from what I can tell, uh, you know, in the UK and Ireland and a bit in New Zealand and now uh, in parts of Australia, because it's not like this in every, you know, part of Australia that 
there are those huge cultures built up, but that culture also takes decades to build. Yeah. So if you don't have, you know, adult, adult decision makers 20 years ago, making those decisions, you're just, you know, you're behind. Yep. And mate, yeah, that's a hundred percent right. And I think when you look at Metropolis and the success Metropolis has had over the last, you know, six to seven years, it's all built around culture and all built around everyone's just best friends there. You know, like we, uh, we have group text messages and Snapchats and I guarantee when I check my phone again after this, there'll be 20 messages from guys just sending stupid stuff to each other. And, um, and I think it, it, it goes two ways when you do that. It, you want to work harder for your mates, you know, you don't want to let your mates down. Uh, and also on the back end of that, it, it's easier to take criticism from your mates and someone that cares about you. So if you're getting told to push harder in the scrum or you're getting told, you know, Hey, don't drop another ball. If it's coming from a mate, it may, it means, you know, you, you're more likely not to want to do it again. If it comes from a bloke that you don't know or don't respect, then it becomes very hard to, to do those things, I think. So that's uh, one of the, I think, the main reason why Metropolis has uh, been so successful over that period of time. Uh, you said you moved to Minnesota up in like 2007, 2008, right? Yeah, 2007. Okay. I noticed based on my research, you were playing and you were a player coach with their division three side when they won the national title in 2011. I was. Yeah. That was my so, first. Uh, so we had uh, twins, actually twin girls after the first one. And I had to step back from rugby a bit. So I decided that uh, the D three team plays locally. I don't have to travel like Midwest is brutal travel. Like, you go, the closest game to us is Chicago, which is a six and a half hour drive. So you're, and it goes anywhere up to 16 hours to Columbus so, and Cincinnati. So to take away that travel, I, it was my first year as coach. And I said, all right, I'm going to be a player coach. I'm going to learn as much as I can doing this. And uh, yeah, we had a great run. We won the national title, which was awesome. It was a great, great team we had then. So when did you become the, Division one head coach. The year oh, after man. that, 2012. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I stepped so, into, after that year, it was, uh, I really enjoyed coaching. The boys really enjoyed having me as the coach. So I took over as the, the full club coach then. Nice. Yeah. So Metropolis currently fields uh, two men's sides. Is that correct? Three. 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 Okay. So division one, division two, and division three. Uh, division four, but yeah. Okay. Oh, division four. Yeah, so one, one, two, four. Got it. So regional competition only yeah. is what I understand. Yep. Division four rugby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so over the period of time looking into Metropolis, you guys are, you know, extremely competitive in the Midwest Premiership uh, this year. It, I mean, what you guys have built there is show sustained success. Yeah. And because, I mean, even though you've taken a new job and are focusing on building that, have you, how much have you like helped out this fall? Or are you still coaching with them? No, no, no I'm not still coaching. I, uh, I've got so much stuff going on that I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, I help when I need to, but I mean, the guys that they got, like Rob Holder's great. 
and uh, the other coach is Ash Horban, who's still around. He was with me the whole time as my forwards coach. He stayed. Uh, Charlie uh, Boulevardra stayed on as well. So all the other coaches stayed, and then Rob, who actually was the owner of uh, Spearhead Rugby Academy, he took over okay. head coach there and, and helps them out. So, yeah, they've been great, mate. And, I mean, we made – we won five of the seven Midwest – championships we or five of the six actually i think it was and then made two final fours and two final eights in the nation so it was a for a club that had never really made the playoffs to have like instant success and then a lot of teams they get to that level and then with player retirements and all that sort of stuff they just drop off where we really made an effort to build throughout division four into two into one and let these young guys come through and um, yeah, they've seen the benefits of it the lot this year for sure. They've, they've been great this year. Yeah, so, he's a young guys. Something in the club game, I, I look at it, you don't see a lot of, you know, I would say super clubs. And you've seen the, uh, the, the division one clubs starting to disappear. I think this year there's only, I think there's like 45, 46. And right. last year they were in the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, I think because when I think of a division one club, what that should be is a, you should have a division two, a division three. And then, you know, talk, this is where we talk about culture, like multiple youth sides going on and yep. even, you know, women and girls, like, right. like, you know, all girls teams and whatnot. Cause that's what I, that's the community club. And then you have, but you have some division one clubs out there that only have a division one team. Right. And there's like 30 dudes. And if something happens, you know, the next year they get crushed. Right. So you only like, what was it? Uh, there was one year. It was like, yeah. So was it in 16? I was playing on the, Fort Bliss Warriors and uh you know we did we did pretty well for a two-year-old club because that army teams are all you know it's really hard to get a beat on them sometimes uh you know you'll have 50 guys in the club and then the next year uh you know there will be 20 or you have 50 guys in the club but you only have 20 guys to go to the match because your schedules are all whacked out right but and that was that was really good culture. I love that club. It was just kind of schedules are kind of hard to do in the army, much like in regular life, but yeah. you're, you miss things. And, uh, one year, like, because people PCS just like, you know, regular in the regular club game, you can have a good run for three years, but I think a lot of clubs don't recruit, like don't think about recruiting. Right. Especially in, um, especially in places like Arizona, because um, you have uh, three division uh, now D one A colleges. But if you talk to some of the the college coaches, they don't really like the clubs. Really, don't go to the games to recruit players, and they don't talk with the collegiate coaches, which <laughs> is a big. We have a big retention issue going from you know high school to club to college club and then from college club to, you know, seniors. And I, I don't really know other than just people don't talk. Sure. So, and 
that's definitely something that uh, Metropolis has done right. Um, we there's like uh, Minnesota Duluth. We've got a lot of kids that come down from there, and they won a you know three national championships in a row there, or pretty close. Uh, St. John's. Uh, so the the U of M. There's a lot of good colleges around. There's a really strong high school um, program as well at, at a lot of schools. So a lot of the coaches that coach in those areas uh, either old metropolis guys or guys that are going back to give back to their school and it's something we really encourage um and we really wanted to make our club and the president adam dilly did a great job of this um of making it a club for everybody so it doesn't matter if you've never played rugby before doesn't matter if you're an eagle that's coming to the team there's a spot on this club for you and you're going to be treated exactly the same way uh you're going to get the same coaching you're going to get the same game plans you're going to get the same attention as everybody across the board, and I think it uh, it really blossomed and grew that the club to where it is now. So you were a an attack and backs coach on Mike Tolkien's 2015 World Cup staff. Uh, yeah. What was what was that build up like? It was great. I I actually really enjoyed my time there with the Eagles. Uh, I thought the players were great. They worked really hard. Uh, and I thought the coaches were great too. I learned a lot. Um, and I thought it was, I mean, it's everyone's dream to go to a World Cup, whether it's a, as a player or as a coach. Uh, and so it was a, it was really a, a dream come true that you could get to go to a World Cup and be on a staff that, you know, has input into how we're going to play and that sort of stuff. And I, I loved my time with them and I thought it was great. Um, everything was good about the Eagles job. I liked it a lot. Do, compared to, I, I don't really know what Eddie had, but as far as resources are concerned, I, I don't recall, but during that period of time where you guys, did you guys assemble the squad outside of uh, windows so that, you know, cause I see a lot uh, of what jo- Eddie Jones gets to do. And maybe yeah. it's that's just them, and maybe it's tier one. But did you, right. they? You, you know, they have multiple mini camps. Yeah, we did. We we got to have uh, there was a straight forwards camp where the forwards went and, and did a lot of scrumming and line out and stuff like that. Uh, and then we took a fully domestic team, so out, none of the pros came to that. And we went down to Uruguay and we played uh, Uruguay and Argentina a couple times each. Uh, that was a two-week trip where we got to see a lot of the domestic guys and, and work with the domestic guys and then uh, watch them play and stuff like that. So that was something that we did. And then we had the um, ARC build-up where we played against uh, Samoa, Tonga, Canada and Japan. And that was uh, another chance to get a, a lot of like guys that were fringe or, or um, the not amateur guys some time in camp with us uh, as well. So we, we, we spent a, a fair bit of time with those guys. Awesome. So, so do you think, since I think a lot of those tournaments during that time were really, as far as world rugby was concerned, they were like a side tournaments. Yep. Uh, what do you think about, you know, the ARC and what it has done for the Eagles and just America, I guess America's rugby in general. Yep. I, I love the concept of ARC. Uh, I love the concept that guys that are 
working full time and, and training twice a week, which is all that really is allowed or all that your time you get really allow in club rugby to go and concentrate on rugby for a few weeks, hear a different voice, you know, work on their game and, and play a higher level of rugby. I think that's always beneficial for everybody. Um, so I think uh, it's been great in terms of uh, developing guys and, and you get guys that come back from those trips, uh, even guys that come back to Metropolis from those trips and they, they just have a new lease on life of what, what they want to do as a, as a player. And uh, it, it gives them that little bit of a taste of what it's like to be a pro. So I think that, um, that MLR is going to offer that on a weekly basis, which I think is going to be really beneficial for those guys. But I think uh, in terms of those tournaments for uh, non-pro guys that live in America, I think it's, you have to do it. I think it's great. Going a little bit back to Metropolis, uh, you were also an assistant with the uh, the Valkyries. Yep. Uh, what would you say is different coaching, you know, women at a high level and men at a high level? Or is it the same? Uh, or should it be the same? It should be the same. It, it's pretty similar. It's not that uh, – the thing that I'll say about the girls is they they really – they're like sponges. They want to know every little – bit of information that they can get out of you where the boys just want outcome. So you can tell somebody, hey, you need to do this, 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 and this, and then this will happen where the, and the girls will want to do it that way where the boys are like, well, I just want this to happen. You know, so I think they, I, I learn a lot coaching with them uh, in terms of how hard they work and how dedicated they are to rugby and just how, like, how much they take in and how much they want to learn and how many questions they ask compared to the, the boys, which I think uh, is a great thing. Awesome. And going into how you got picked up, uh, well before, I guess, uh, with Nola Gold, there was, I would call it a rumor, Yeah. as far as a seventh team originally in Minneapolis, were you approached to, to stay there? And <laughs> now that there, the rumor is that there's no... Minneapolis team and it's going to be in San Diego. I I talked to the Minneapolis team and I don't know what their plans are now. Once I signed with Nola, they didn't want to talk to me anymore about it, uh, which is fair. Um, so I'm not sure what their plans are, whether they're going to be in San Diego, whether they're going to be here. I mean, hopefully they're here. I, I'd love to see a team in Minneapolis. Um, just as you did last week talking to Ryan, you, you feel that that passion and that that drive that that he has and Todd has and Tim has, and it's really hard to not buy into what they're trying to build down there. And uh, for me, it was one of those things of um, I think more than anything, uh, going away and 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 doing it without being in the comfort of my own little bubble in Minneapolis. I think was a a big selling point to me, uh, trying something different, trying a new city, um, getting a say to build a, a club from the ground up was a huge part of it as well, you know, with players and, and how we're going to do things and how we're going to run things was, uh, was a big selling point to me compared to uh, kind of what was on the table from the Minneapolis franchise. So I think that's, the, that's more the reason than anything. It wasn't anything to do with anything other than I just – really bought into what they wanted to do and it, it made me excited to go down there and, and help them do what they're going to do. So, 
Oh, I thought it was you didn't have to shovel snow for four mate, months that, out of the year. Mate, that's a big part of it too. It snowed the first time today and I'm I'm not happy about it. I don't like it one bit. My wife dreads when winter's coming because I, I start to get a little antsy. So living living in a sunny place year-round will be a lot more beneficial for me. And my family will enjoy it too. They're going to come too, so they'll enjoy it too. That'll be that'll be a good time. So, one of the things that when I when I talk to Ryan and you know when I've re- re- when he's gone on tape and also on paper and talking about this philosophy, you're I think it was a it was a Rugby World Cup article. Um, I think it was titled "To America with Love" ten years ago, "To America with Love" or something. Yeah, and man. it was about about you, yeah. and it was like the last paragraph was about um. It's about crossover, I would say crossover athletes sure. and re- recruiting. I, I call them choice. I call it, I say choice athletes. So first choice athletes, guys who, you know, are going to play division one level sports right. on scholarship and recruiting those types of athletes. Because there's only, after you, there's only so many scholarship spots on a basketball team, on a baseball team. Yep. on well not even scholarship spots there's only so many roster spots on a collegiate on a division one collegiate uh team and then you go to the next level there's only so many you know contracts per year uh you know basketball uh football of course only you have the arena league you have the cfl a bit but even the cfl there's not a it's not majority Americans. It's majority of, you know, guys playing, you know, Canadian football their entire lives and, you know, standouts who just don't necessarily make it here. Um, You know, they get a shot and if they're really good, they come back as we've seen throughout, you know, the history. But so when it comes to recruiting, I think you guys in the article talked about hockey players because I mean, there's big hockey players, like six foot four, Viking type guys, yeah, on the ice, yeah. I mean, you could, you'd have. There's probably flankers and eight men, uh, you know, falling off trees sure. in Minnesota. Yeah, and and the, th- the thing that I I think about hockey players and, and football football players can definitely do it as we've seen. Um, Metropolis got a couple of football guys now that are great. They're outstanding. Uh, Melvin D'Souza was a running back at North Dakota. He's like, he's in his second year of, of rugby and he's the leading try scorer the last two years in the Midwest. Uh, Joel Jungist was an, another like fullback who came out. He had a trial with Miami Dolphins, ended up playing rugby and was great. Uh, but the thing I find about hockey players and even basketball players to an extent is they understand space. They understand what a two-on-one means. Understand if there's two guys standing in front of me, there's a there's going to be space somewhere if I distribute the ball. Uh, where football players, you've got to get that mentality out of them that they've got to take as many yards as they can uh, before they get tackled. So I, I think that in, in terms of crossover athletes, I mean, it doesn't get much tougher than ice hockey. And they're tough kids and they're aggressive and they understand what it takes to be, you know, find space and look for space and, and, and look for that stuff. So it's a, it's a little easy transition, I think for, for those guys as well. One of my favorite, uh, now I wouldn't call her a crossover now at this point, she's been playing rugby for like three and a half, four years now is, is Kelter. Uh, I mean, she's, yeah. 
like her story is just wild to me as like, how do you go from, you know, captaining, you know, the U20 team to a world championship and not to like, just, just to be on the, the, you know, just be on the Olympic team. I don't know how that happens, but she was, you know, Kelter, like she was a division one hockey and soccer player. Like you don't, those kinds of athletes just don't, like they're that's an elite athlete. They don't they don't really exist that yeah. like out there, and the fact that you could get one to go play, you know, women's rugby. There's there's going to be like that one, yeah, in uh, in men's rugby that you can you know create the face yeah. of of your team eventually because it's just a great story and it's easy to sell. Yeah, because people eat that kind of story up. Yeah, she's outstanding, mate. She's very, very good. And uh, she, yeah, she's she's great. And that's the perfect example there of, of a hockey player that's so tough but understands what it's like to play in space and fast can kick. She can do everything within, what, two, three years of playing rugby, you know. So it, there's definitely opportunities for guys. I'm not saying that the whole, that everyone's going to make it, but there's definitely people out there that you've seen, that I've seen, they could definitely give it a fair shake, especially in an environment like a MLR uh, academy or system where they can train pretty much every day on their on the basics and, and pick that up a lot faster than Tuesday, Thursday play a game. You know, so yeah. I mean, this year we're seeing, uh, especially if we if you, if everyone follows Glendale, we're seeing you know a team that isn't practicing yet. Yeah at uh you know what you guys i think will practice will put in total hours uh starting in january which i think is you know you're gonna have a bunch of full-time guys and you're gonna have a bunch of uh part-time players but you're gonna i think as a squad based on just my math based on seeing houston right now is putting in about 25 hours a week right as a as a full 35 man training squad there i know glendale for a fact isn't training that much but right. they're still in a a focused strength and conditioning environment early in the morning, and then they're you know playing, practicing around three to four times a week in the evening, you know at a high level. And they're just getting of the season. I think they've transitioned some players out uh, to get ready for. Autumn Internationals and to just push towards, you know, the launch, full launch of the Raptors side. It's like you're seeing the dramatic difference between, you know, one team that practices two days a week, especially so they've played Old Blue twice, right? right. Old Blue, they both have about, I think they both had, I think, oh, so Glendale has eight capped guys in their system and Old Blue has six. And we saw at least the home game, the tremendous disparity between the two. Yeah, I watched that game. It was, it was big. Yeah, but even when you look at guys that they've got um, that have been around there for a couple of years, uh, like Will and those guys, they're so much bigger and stronger and better in contact than they were when they first turned up. So I think you're right. Like a, a training environment where they get to lift every morning together. Uh, even though they're doing three sessions at afternoon or late late night sessions a week, 
plus film sessions and stuff like that, it's still a huge jump from what the average club is doing. And I think it, when you get to the MLR level and you have a chance to work with these guys even more than that, then the sky's the limit in terms of the quality that's going to be on the field. Because, I mean, for me, the question that we got a long time ago and the question, I think, I think the question has been stopped coming out because I just get, I'm, I'm probably the most cynical guy on the podcast and the most skeptical, but I've seen what Glendale has done. I've, I've gone down to practice at Houston and I, as far as the quality of the game that you guys are going to put out there, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fantastic. And I think it's going to be well past, uh, well past the what was I would say the end of the previous professional league that we had, sure. Um, by by midseason, quality wise, because um, those co- I mean those coaching staffs were great, but they barely had time to assemble their teams up front. I think San Diego had the longest camp because they had a buy up front. Yeah. Uh, so they they were in camp for. Five weeks. Sure. And you guys assemble in January. And yep. like the, the kickoff for this thing for the whole league is in January. And that's when, you know, you're 20, 25, maybe, maybe even depending on the week, 30 hours of time is invested into strength and rugby and film. Right. And the quality of pra- like I said, the quality of practice that I saw with Justin Fitzpatrick is I, I was I was really impressed. Good. And you know, people keep saying, Hey, so how good is it gonna be? I think it's gonna be very good. Yeah. I, I think you guys are gonna put something I think it's gonna capture what we want to capture. Yeah. And I think uh the great thing about this league is that every team agrees with that and every team is pushing really hard to make that happen. You don't want to be left behind, especially in the first year. I mean, you got one chance to make an impression and that first year needs to be, you know, really good quality matches, uh, no blowouts. You know, you want to make sure that there's progression in each game as well, I think. So you're getting better and better with each week. So the players have that progression as well. So I think, um, yeah, every time I talk to the league or any time I talk to any of the other coaches, which I, I do, then everyone's on the same page that we're, we're trying to build the best thing that we can build. Uh, each team's kind of helping each other out to make sure that this league's going to be great. Yeah. So getting into specific coaching, what is, what is your style? Because we see, at least with Mitch, we saw a wide-open Southern Hemisphere style of play. And I've seen the way uh, Glendale has played, and I, I've seen the talent assembled in Houston. I think we're going to play like heavy up front, but dynamic in both the pack and in and in the back line. Yeah. So not Gatlin Ball. Sure. Right. <laughs> good. That's good. Well, the family. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, my favorite thing about rugby, and, and this is something that's gone back ever since I was 
in change rooms with my dad and listening to my dad talk and, and to other coaches and stuff like that. And, and something that my dad would talk about was that everybody has an idea of how to play rugby. Like you have an idea how you want to play rugby. I have an idea how we want to play rugby. Fitzy has one. Uh, Davey Williams has one. Mitch has one. They're all different, which is great. If everyone was the same, then it'd be boring and you wouldn't want to watch it. You know, so uh, in terms of uh, my style is that I'm a kind of a mixture. I think that if you're not if you're not really, really physical and you don't win the middle of the field, so if your forwards don't get over the game line, then there's no point having a wide, wide game, right? So we're going to really concentrate on being really physical at the contact point so that we can create fast ball. And we will play a, a more, uh, I'd say, southern hemisphere kind of rugby, a more open style of rugby, which gives uh, – our playmakers, plenty of options and plenty of decisions to make uh, and guys, you know, running into space and then making the decisions, you know. So uh, I think the biggest thing for us early is to make sure that we take control of that, that, that contact point and take control of that physicality up the middle. If we don't win that, then there's, there's not much you can do off the back of that. Uh, Set piece as well. I mean, I'm big in terms of our platform, attacking platforms off set piece. If our scrum and line out aren't solid, then and we take those away, then that that makes it really hard for our backs to get over the game line and, and create anything. Um, I think the, the biggest difference between the way that I like to play and other people like to play is I like to manipulate the defenses so that our playmakers make all the calls, and we have two on a field at a time, and they they basically can sit back and they can kind of manipulate defences and you'll see it uh, when we play and you'll, you'll kind of understand what I'm talking about in terms of that they get to really dictate what we're doing with the ball uh, all the time. It's our ball, we know where it's going, so we should never really turn it over. We should have plenty of people at, at the breakdowns. Everyone should know exactly where we want to go at every minute of the game. Um, but I also like to be like more hands-off and let those guys run run the show. I'm not going to sit in the stands and have a megaphone and call out plays from the sideline. Like they've got to see what, what we're doing and understand what our, our system entails and work within our, the frames of our system. But in terms of free reign, they have free reign to do whatever they see uh, in terms of the, the play calling and stuff like that. When it comes to plays, I think uh, that's something that is really different from like, originally I was a football player way back in the yep. day, another life, yep. and now I'm a rugby player. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine before the uh, – he was, who was at the captain's run uh, ahead of San Diego, uh, the San Diego test this last uh, summer, and talked about what Mitch did different compared to other people who he observed uh, in the international game. In compared to previous head coaches, like multiple guys. And he's like, well, the captain's run for Mitch just finds the highest point to observe. So he's just far away. Yeah. And he'll talk like, and, you know, Todd ran the practice. And that made me think about the game in general. Uh, you know, football is very coach centric. Uh, you're you do have a lot of decisions based on routes and options based on defense, but they're very they're not fluid um, based on play call unless you're running you know a no huddle offense the entire time 
and you're just going like that. But rugby is very, I would, I say player centric and player control. Yep. Uh, once you hit the game, coaches are sort of out of coaches are sort of out of the, the equation because it's very like, it's a fluid, it's a fluid motion sport, which is what football is not. It's a, it's a reset sport for every play. So how do you, how would you communicate that to, cause you, we do have coaches in rugby who are not player centric. So, and it sounds like you're a player centric guy. Very much. Very much so. Um, one of the things that I like to do, and one of the things I will do, is I'll get to know each and every one of those players personally, how they work, inside and out, their families, everything about them. Um, everyone learns differently, as you know. Everyone, some guys like to be yelled at, some guys like to be told how it is, some guys like to be, you know, one-on-one -on -one meeting with a cuddle and hey, you're gonna do better, <laughs> you know, and that's <laughs> and that's part of it, you know, like uh, so. The first thing for me is to get to know each one, each and every one of these guys, and how they tick. Uh, and then there'll be a framework, and there'll be a menu of everything that we've got in our arsenal and what we want to do. And then from there, the playmakers will completely take over. Uh, starting generally starting Thursday, in in our um, like we'll have a breakdown. And I'll say, okay, this is how we're going to beat this team. This is where they're weak. This is where they're strong. This is what we're trying to do. Here's our menu. This is what I want to see this week. We don't have to have a thousand plays. These are the ones that I want to, you know, work on this week. This is all the stuff. And then it's completely on them to, you know, I can't come out of the stands and make tackles for them. You know, I can't come out of the stands and all of a sudden grab the ball and pass it to the space that I see. My job is I can get messages out there and I can say, hey, did you notice that space? Or, hey, they're really folding around the corner fast. Have you thought about this? Um, but in terms of they're running the show, 100% they're running the show. That's, you know, that's their time is that. And my job is to make sure that they're ready to do that. And my job is to make sure that um, we fix the things that we don't so that they don't happen again. That's the, the main thing that I think as a coach that you need to do. Uh, set the practice plan, make sure that everyone understands exactly what we're trying to do, how we want to play, how we want to beat the team. Then it's over to the players. So over time, what's your opinion on, I asked this question of like every person I've talked to in, in MLR is um, one thing is one thing we're missing in American rugby is technical coaches for almost every position. Yep. Um, what's your opinion on uh, the use of player coaches or, I mean, I, I think I see it, with the staff that Hodges has selected for the interim staff, there's, yep. you know, four, there's four guys, yep. which I think under Mitch previously. And I think like other than the world cup year, Mike only had two assistants. Yep. Uh, what's your, what's your idea of using player coaches and then progressing past, you know, year one. Yeah. And part of the problem is, training technical coaches that are domestically available. <laughs> yeah. I think the biggest thing for me with that is that I think it's very hard to be a player coach. I've done it myself, even at D3 and D1 level. It, it's really hard. You take on the responsibility of everybody around you. You don't 
just take on your own responsibility. You don't just play your game. You're playing for everybody. So I think it, it although the first year, like getting guys like Rook and Matty Truville and those guys, and, and we got Hubert Biden's coming down that's going to help us with our scrums and stuff like that, I think it's great that those guys that are kind of at the back end of their career can can do that and then hopefully they transition into just being coaches, um, which would be great for everybody if that was the case. Um, but I think that in terms of having a lot of player coaches or having a head coach as a player coach, it's, I'd say, almost impossible to do at this level if you want to get to where you want to be as a league. You don't look around the world and see player coaches for the in Super Rugby or player coaches in the Premiership. Um, I think as a startup, it, it's completely fine because these guys that they're bringing in, like you've, you've talked about Rook and potentially he's skyrocketing as a coach from what you've seen. To give him that experience at the back end of his career is great, but I don't think that it's going to last long if everybody's just getting player coaches that are, you know, worrying about everything else as well as what they're trying to do. Um, it also makes it really hard if you want to drop a guy. You know, if all of a sudden their form's not as good as the young guy that's coming up, and you have to say, hey, I know you're a coach, but you're on the sideline now. You know, that's when, you, when you're picking player coaches and stuff like that, they've got to be out and out the best players so people listen. Because if, you're, if all of a sudden you're trying to teach someone that's better than you and thinks that you should have their spot, that, that infighting and, and that stuff that happens in clubs, that culture that shifts is a big deal, in my opinion. So Yeah, that's, I mean, that I, that's definitely been in... Um an issue in the first two clubs I was in, in the, I mean, the other, the first club, I, I think the guy who was doing it just didn't know how to manage. Whereas sometimes uh, the second club I was in uh, great coaches in practice, but when, when games would get tight, uh, they couldn't manage uh, 23. They could only right. manage, they could only be, be the captain. Right. on the field they couldn't be the coach and said hey that wing is tired as heck he's right. hitting the sideline i'm replacing two props figure it out sure. yep. you know and that's that's my big thing with with clubs is like even in you know club rugby guys on the field they're they're only worried about 15 yeah the, the captain's only worried about 15 he's not worried about managing minutes because for the most part, club rugby, no one has 80-minute fitness. Right. That's why there's eight subs. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, there's 80-minute fitness in, you know, professional rugby, and there's going to be 80-minute fitness in, you know, yep. in this league. But even guys with that kind of conditioning, you know, sometimes they have a bad day, and they need to sit for 20 minutes, you know. Hooker needs yep. to change. Prop needs to change. Fly yep. half needs to change because there's just something's, you know, we have a, we have an open system for our bodies. And so things just, you know, they move around and you get sick or you're not thinking straight. And then, you know, an hour later you're like, Oh, I was wrong. And you lost the game. So, Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that when you're at the club level, you, especially when you're just when you're a captain coach, you're not really as in tuned to the game like you're talking about as you are from watching it from a sideline and watching what everyone's doing. You're really worried about 
your job. If you're a front row and you're a captain coach and you're pushing in the scrum all the time but, and then you look up and the ball's drop, you don't really know who's done it. You know, you don't know what's happening, why we're losing ground, all that stuff. But you also don't know what's happening with guys in their personal lives as well. You know, if all of a sudden there's a guy that's having a bad day that doesn't usually have a bad day and you need to get him off, you know, you, you can look back and say, well, you know, he's up all night with his sick kid or he had a massive fight with his wife this morning because he's playing rugby again. All those things play into the mental psyche of what you're trying to do. Um, so I think that as from being a player coach, I think it's, it's very, very hard to be a player coach, in my opinion. And uh, it's not that you can't do it, but I think at this level, it's going to be nearly impossible for someone to be a, like a head coach or a long-term player coach. Got it. That's, that's where I want to, that's, that's the kind of like answer I want to hear for, uh, for progression. And I think everyone I've asked that question of, it's like, well, we sort of need it, you know, first two or three years maybe. And hopefully, you know, things are set by year four. Cause I look at year four as the, line of demarcation for me because year five is like businesses do five-year plans 10-year plans and year five is when i think you know we're looking at a fully commercially viable enterprise based on the amount of business people involved like these everyone that i've met that you know is an owner or spoken to that is an owner like yes this is a startup but this is a commercial enterprise and they want it to be self-sustaining uh whereas if you look at Aviva and you look at the union-owned competitions in Europe and even in the Southern Hemisphere, they're not really they're not really run like businesses and they aren't necessarily sustaining themselves. Right. So, it, so I think by year four we have you know guys, I hope you know getting ready to hang up the the boots on player coach and you know just transitioning to be coaches and. You know, we've recruited the talent and the wages are stable. Uh, because I know, because people come ask like, well, what about this? What about that? And well, I got the note uh, based on my, my idea was, hey, if it's a, uh, if it's single A money, talking about like talking baseball, if it's single A baseball money, that's enough to get a guy for four years. Because I've seen it. Like I've yeah. had, you know, baseball player roommates in college, like, they chased the ball. They chased that ball for four years on that money. And, you know, their parents didn't have money. And they just – because the chance to make it big uh, was there. And cool. so they, you know, not really put their life on hold for four years, but, you know, lived, lived loose and lived fast. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I think that that three to four years – Four years is a big deal in this league and what they're trying to do. And I think when you look at the guys that they've got as play coaches so far, like the Phil Mack and us with Hubert Bidens and Rook and Matty Truville, they're all great rugby players that one day are going to be great coaches. And, and you know, not every great rugby player becomes a great coach. So that's the other thing about bringing a guy into a culture that doesn't quite understand you know, and you think, well, bring him in because I can give him a bit more money because he's a coach. He might be the worst coach in the world. He might be able to do it, but he might not be able to coach it. So um, with, with the four guys they got, I've got no doubt that down the road they're going to be long-time coaches. So, I'm, you know, I'm happy with those 
those guys. But if all of a sudden somebody, you know, brings in some uh, super rugby Aussie or Kiwi or South African guy and just pays him more money to be a coach and it doesn't work out, then that's the when I think the league starts to take a hit, in my opinion. So Awesome. So hmm. I think we're I think we're getting we're getting there. So as far as player selection, do you do you think that uh, MLR is going to be the the choice destination for all players coming out of college, uh, you know, year two or three, four, because I mean, what, what I'm seeing is, you know, like we talked about uh, two teams that were full of Eagles. One was ex- the aggregate score. One is extremely dominant over the other. Yeah. And I'm looking at guys, you know, Ben Sema, who's because university of Maryland isn't, you know, their their men's rugby club isn't you know the best. He's playing, you know, Rocky Gorge D one going to the national playoffs. Like that's the highest level of rugby he has locally. So that's what he's doing, oh. and you know that's what's gotten him to be, you know, an Eagles pool player, multiple starts at at fullback. Yeah. Do you see that the league because he's going to graduate this year? Yeah. That that's the guy I pick in the back of my head that if he's not playing in Europe. Um, and what I'm seeing, you guys, the lead produced so far, says like a guy like that needs to he needs to be a fullback on an MLR team in 2019. 100%. No, I agree. I totally agree with that. And I think that um, I think it's going to take a couple of years, like you said, to get to that point where the wages are sustained, where everyone feels really good about where this league's going. Uh, there's none of that. We did one year and we're done. Uh, we did two years, we're done, you know. So I think that eventually, like you see in Super Rugby, uh, like you see in the Premiership, if you want to play for the Eagles, you have to play in the professional league. You can't just say, I'm going to play for the Eagles and live in Detroit anymore or Minneapolis anymore unless they've got a team. But you've got to go. And, and these guys sacrifice a lot to be part of the Eagles. Like the guys that are local, they give up so much to be part of the Eagles that – given an opportunity to get paid outside of their trips with the Eagles, even as much as a triple A AAA baseballer or a double A, whatever it is, double A baseballer, then that's going to make them better players. And it's going to make the Eagles better. If you just have what they have now with everybody just scattered across the country and playing for random teams, then I think you're just going to end up getting the same result. So I think that in the next couple of years, there definitely is going to be uh a big push for all those guys that are local that want to play for the Eagles moving to these teams. And then out of the college teams, either some sort of draft system or something that gets those top guys into MLR franchises straight out of school. So they don't have any worries about, you know, put their life on hold for a couple of years. They don't have to go find a job yet. You know. Awesome. Um, Looking at there, there was a lot of discussions. I had this discussion on, um, with uh, Richard Osborne and Thierry Dupont on my Texas trip about uh, a player draft. And I, I said to them that I didn't think for, for a while um, that when, and I'm talking, you know, if you decide to have a player draft in year two or year three, I don't think the talent like amateur player draft straight out of 
uh, uh, straight out of college that didn't go through an academy system sure. like Glendale or Saracens or uh, Houston. And I know you guys are about to uh, embark on that adventure shortly as well. Yep. Yep. But collegiate players, the talent overall um, can't sustain like a deep draft. So I'm thinking, you know, if there's 10 teams, it's only two rounds. Right. Because, I mean, there's only – so minus like 20. So there's only about 80,000 people playing rugby from the age of five to, you know, like 60. Yeah. There's only – so, and in that group, there's only about 30,000 – playing collegiate rugby and sure. there's only so many spots to play on an MLR team. So, um, you know, just the amount of like dynamic and elite athletes that I look at and see in collegiate rugby, there's not a lot. And, sure. you know, I'm very critical of some of the ideas in collegiate rugby currently because yes, it's not an NCAA sport, but what does USA rugby and what do the colleges want out of their system? Do they want per to produce high performance athletes? And so, like you guys, I mean, locally, I think uh, LSUA lost a bunch of funding from uh, their call from, you know, student life or whoever was pushing funding behind that team. And, what hurts me is when people refer to collegiate teams as varsity sports, but they don't receive other than like Cal, Lindenwood, St. Mary's, they don't receive, you know, NCAA level uh, support. Right. So it, it, I would love for teams to just call themselves high performance clubs and say, Hey, this is, if you want to play first or second side, you have to commit the time. And if you can't commit the time, you play third side at the collegiate level. And that's, that's what it is. Because a, a varsity sport in my eyes, which is NCAA, uh, when it loses funding, it, goes, it either gets rescued by alumni or it goes away. Like, that's, that's a varsity sport. Sure. Whereas, um, you know, clubs sort of can quasi-exist yeah. because they're – not run out for the most part out of that athletic budget. Right. I think um, one of the things that I think uh, I've thought, I've thought for a long time is that everyone, everyone talks about it, everyone wants and USA rugby is really pushing hard to get kids starting young. So five, six, seven and playing through high school and playing through college and then into men's club rugby. Great idea. It is like you, you need to get that, but without an outlet, without something that, that drives that, like a professional league, I don't think that they're going to get the the amount of people doing it as they should. And I, when I say that, I think that you know, if you go more top down rather than bottom up, I think it can work a little better. If you if MLR is really really good in the in the third and fourth year, you're going to have more kids wanting to play rugby. You're going to have more kids that have, you know, you want people to have posters of uh, Sebastian Kilm on their wall. You want kids to come out to games and meet the, the, the players and you want the players to go to schools and, and get that buzz going that way 
rather than just say, hey, here's a little bit bigger ball than a football ball and it's a little bit different game, you should try it, it's fun. You know, if, if kids don't have, if there's, take a kid who has, uh, who has all the ability in the world as a rugby player at high school and football. Nine times out of 10, they pick football because they've still got that NFL dream. They've still got that, that, that pull of scholarships. They've got all those things. So they go away from rugby where if there's something for them to shoot for, you know, even if three out of 10 pick rugby path, that's three great rugby players that we got back in that path. You know what I mean? And that's where I think USA rugby has, has kind of got a little backwards. And I mean, I grew up in a country where it was already a big, big deal anyway. Like I started playing when I was five, but it was already a big deal. But I also know that when I was five running around on the, on the front lawn with my brother, I was pretending to be these rugby players that I watched on TV. I wasn't pretending to be myself because if I didn't know what rugby was or I didn't have anything to aspire to, it wouldn't drive me to, to do it for a long period of time in, in a sense, if that makes sense. And I think that that's, where I think a draft can come in. Cause I think that participation should rise based on the fact that this is, you know, going to be out there for people to watch and people to see and say, Hey, America's got, America's got this great professional rugby league. What is this game? They watch it and then they're like, Hey, I want to play that game. Or parents say, Hey, that looks like a great game for my kid to play. So I think that that, uh, that's my kind of theory on the whole thing, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, people talk a lot about bottom up and what we need to do. And, you know, like I've talked about, you know, transitioning players in their thir- in their mid 30s to say, hey, man. Um, it's like you're losing it a little bit. You're still athletic. You're still fit. Uh, how about you come with me to the the ref certification course this weekend? And, uh, you know, because the pathway for as the game grows, the pathway to become a, a high-level ref is so much more open yeah. than it is to becoming a high-level rugby player when you've been in the club game for 10 years. Like, right. at a certain point, it's like, hey, man, uh, you can still play, but you need to go get level one and level two coach certification and help coach the youth team sure. and stuff like that. Yeah. But the big thing for me as far as top down stuff is, and you know, I don't, you don't see the effort being made at least during the 10 years that uh, Nigel was CEO. He wasn't really talking to high school athletic associations and whatnot. I think that's the biggest, the, like the MLR being established, you know, where there's stability over three, four years and we know it's going to be around is important because that gives uh, coaches administrators, children, aspirational goals. But that also like helps put pressure on, you know, high school athletic associations. And that's the thing for me that the union needs to work on like the most getting the sport sanctioned in say 30 States, the 30, you know, all the Southern States where the weather is, mostly good and where most of the population is, is extremely important because right now only Massachusetts has a, is like has sanctioned in school, high school rugby. Right. Like they're the only state and guess what? It snows in the winter in Massachusetts. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you could get like, there's a ton of rugby going on in San Diego and Los Angeles that I actually didn't know about growing up, which is sort of sad, but it's even, it's much bigger now. Yeah. If you could get, I think, what was it? Lacrosse was first sanctioned as a high school sport in the San Diego section. So we don't have one whole, like one whole state championship panel to go through. You have like section championships, which are the thing. Uh, but they were the first ones to sanction lacrosse in the state. And now multiple sections sanction lacrosse, but rugby is just as big as lacrosse in San Diego. So if you could get San Diego section to sanction lacrosse, then you have stipends being issued for high school coaches and coaching positions and teaching positions being held for high school coaches. So they can make a living because being a walk-on coach is rough. Right. Like, cause it's a, cause coaching is a full-time job. It is. Uh, so if you're going to coach in the school system, you kind of need a teaching job. Yeah. Just the way it is. So that's, that's yeah. where I see the growth model needing to, like, I hope I, Dan Payne's smart and I know he's working on this stuff and he's just yeah. got so much working on, but that's part of the, part of the plan that I think needs to be pursued most when it comes to growing the game is getting high school sports associations to sanction the sport. Cause then you have, you know, paid opportunities for coaches, right? Kids don't have to drive 30 minutes to go play with their club. Right. They can just show up in the spring and, you know, February, March and start playing rugby. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that, that we'll do, and one of the things that I want all of our players to do, and I do it with, I want Metropolis as well most of the time, for most of the guys that can is, uh, and the Nola guy, goal guys have no excuse is they they're all going to get assigned a, a high school team or a college team, and they're going to be out there and they're going to be helping them, and they're going to be showing them, and they're going to be building that rapport of what it is to be a rugby player and, and try and build that. Um, generate some excitement about that um and yeah i agree with you i think that if they could rugby's big in a sense to people who play rugby or people who know rugby outside of that people don't even know it exists um so there's got to be more out there to show that there is rugby and there's a lot of rugby and there's a lot of places where people can go play and um i think that's again on the back end of what I think MLR should be doing is pushing a lot of that out there and having their players out there and running camps and running summer programs and doing all these things where people know that there is such thing as rugby. And that's when people start to catch on. That's, I mean, the community development that I've seen with the league so far with Houston, uh, seeing what Glendale has built and then, you know, up in uh, Seattle and then Utah being uh, sort of a confluence of their premiership side of their premiership teams. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing tons of community, I would say activism. So the players are getting out in uh, the community, working with the clubs. And, you know, uh, my, my conversation with uh, Richard Osborne was because uh, one of the old, old boys from the Austin Blacks uh, was named, I forget his name now. It's in a notebook across the way. So, but uh, like rookie rugby, uh, 
in Texas is being fully established this year and all the Austin players will be going with, uh, you know, the rookie rugby staff and going into middle schools and teaching, you know, middle schools and elementary schools and teaching kids to play rugby during PE. Yeah. Perfect. And we'll have something similar and we're working on that as well. And I totally agree with that. That's definitely something that needs to happen from all the boys. They need to give back. Uh, and me as well as a coach that I, we need to give back to our community. And if we don't, if we want our community to support us, then we need to give back to our community. I'm seeing that with what, like your your phase one stadium project, based on yep. like when I heard about that, and then every every person I shared that with, they were like, right on, because that's awesome. So, you know, for the beginning, you know, small size ground that also services, you know, a high school that probably had to be a vagabond uh, when it came to playing their home football games for the entirety of its existence will now have, you know, a world rugby certified pitch that they can also play football on in the fall. Like, so they'll, they, they'll have the facility to also play rugby, uh, you know, which I understand. And you guys have a high school program run out of uh, new Orleans uh, rugby football club. So I think that's, you know, that's awesome. Like you're, you're like the investment into the community is already there. Yeah. And you just move forward. Yeah. I mean, our facilities that they got set up down there for the boys are world-class like the training, they've redone their pitch down there. So that's completely redone and resodded and everything's nice and perfect. Uh, they've got all the locker rooms put up. They've, uh, closed down the clubhouse now, uh, the old clubhouse, and they've knocked out the bottom level and made it into a training facility with like ice bars and hot tubs and training tables and physical therapy. Uh, and then upstairs they've got uh, meeting rooms and, you know, projections and offices and uh, player lounges, all that stuff is. And then they've got the stadium down the road a little bit uh, and the gym just across the road from the um, the clubhouse. So, I mean... In terms of what the players are going to get um, by coming down to NOLA is world-class. Like, the, the facilities are great. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it, it's that, that proof of concept stuff. If we if we can prove in the first year, first or second year, that we can really do it and we can sell it out and we can put a product on the field that people really want to watch, then, you know, sky's the limit of, of things that we can get done and accomplish down there and the, the – um, the school where the stadium is and all the old like dorm rooms and everything. It, it's a, it's beautiful. It's like an old French building place surrounded by trees and it's, it's pretty cool. And I think that, uh, and out the front, we'll have a lot of fan stuff, activation stuff, and it's going to be like a carnival every, every home game. And it's going to be exciting. And, and then it's up to us to put a product on the field that people want to come and see. So. I think I hit everything. So. What, I I mean, thank you for giving me almost an hour and a half. Uh, You're good, mate. No worries. I can talk about this stuff all day. Uh, I love it. So, yeah, so can I. I just needed to write down more questions. But I think, you, you know, as far as build up, we've, oh, here's a good one. Sure. So I think you guys have signed two Metropolis dudes. We have. How many? Can you give me a number? Who else? Is, how many more are coming? How many more? Fitzy said, don't mention players' names. So I guess I can tell you numbers. But we're, 
we're pretty yeah. close to having our squad all sorted out. In the next couple of weeks, there's going to be some announcements of some players that I think is that are going to get everyone excited again. Uh, the quality of player that we're getting down there uh, is definitely very, very high class and and great rugby players, great guys. Uh, Metropolis, there will be. What'd you say? We announced two. There'll be three or four more coming. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's not, that's not pillaging. So. Uh, yeah. And it, it wasn't that uh, Metropolis is a great club and they are. And it's one of those things that um, it, it, it's not that I'm taking these guys away from Metropolis and Metropolis doesn't think of that either, uh, that these guys deserve their opportunity and they deserve their crack. And I mean, Jojo and Pex are outstanding rugby players. They're going to, Turn, they can turn a game on its head, and uh, they love the way that we, the style of rugby I play. They love the everything about it, and so yeah, they were jumping out of their skins to get down there and and continue on and and try and help us build this thing. So, yeah, I really want. I mean, I understand that a lot of clubs are gonna over time are gonna lose players. I get, I get that, yeah. but I, I think one thing we sort of saw with the last league, and that was just the way it was done, and but still the opportunity to get paid a relatively significant sum in rugby in this country is very fleeting. It is. Every club should be about further development of their players. Cause if they have a good culture, when that player retires, they're still going to, they're going to come back or they're going to come back and hang out on vacation and all that stuff. You know, you know, the league, you know, moves forward and becomes what I think you guys, what I think the the people behind it want, which is to eventually be the best league in the world. Yep. And I think there's definitely that possibility. Sure. Uh, you know, because based on what you see in wages, it's not, you know, football or soccer money that you're competing with. No. So if over time you have a stable league – I mean, in year four, I think you can pay more than some of these basically division two leagues oversee or pay. Yeah. And, you know, approach, you know, unless things skyrocket, approach those salary caps, uh, you know, within 10 or 15 years. Right. And, you know, there, because, you know, the, the, coaching, the coaching staffs that I've seen so far, Yours included. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased because there, there was a question is like, should you limit? Would you want MLR to just bring in American? Like it was U.S. born coaches, not, uh, not domestically available. Because domestically available, I think, for seven teams, I think you can build at least three of them, if you plucked people from every team, yeah. probably build high-quality coaching staffs from the domestically available talent now if they uh, if they decided to leave their other job because some of the best coaches have pretty good gigs. Sure. So, yeah. And I, I agree. I think there's a difference between American-born and, and, and guys like, like me and Davey Williams, who have been here for 11 years of our lives and poured our heart and soul into building club rugby and 
rugby in the USA. Like I'd consider myself an American coach. I'm Australian, but I consider myself an American coach. I think if anywhere that I'd want to be a professional coach, it's America, you know? So, um, I think that, yeah, there's definitely a difference. And, uh, and I agree, teams are going to lose players and most teams should be happy about that, that they've got quality players that are going to go play a higher level. And, yeah, hopefully one day they come back and hopefully they come back better players and they come back even into coaching roles and stuff like that for their clubs. But, like, I can even tell you that Metropolis is going to lose a couple of other players to other teams. So <coughs> it's not that I didn't want them. Uh, it's that, you know, that sometimes there's different players and different things that go on, but there's going to be... Uh, other Metropolis guys that end up on other teams as well. So um, when you've got a good team and you've got a good culture and everything like that, then you should be happy that, you know, six, seven, eight of your guys are getting offered contracts to go play uh, professional rugby. So that's a that's a credit to the club, I think. So Yeah, that was uh, – I think GCU had a guy at a – Grand Canyon had a kid that was about to be a senior who, well, he finished the year with a knee injury. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were sort of mad at the time because they uh, they had two players getting talked to yeah. by the MLR, and you know only one of those guys went. Sure. And how he got talked, to, I would say how he got talked into it is like, well, a guy was a U twenty All American at one point. Um, was in the I think yeah I I've seen his U twenty tape. I th- no, it wasn't on the one that qualified for the the JWC, but it was Kwasniewski, Kwasniewski, I think is, yeah. is the guy. Down at Glendale. And, uh, yeah. Out at Glendale. And here's the thing is like hit the, one of the U 20 coaches was on uh, their staff and it based on the games I've seen him play, he looks healthy. So you only have so much time. And this yeah. is what, you know, I talk about, with, uh, you know, football players that decide to come out. I was like, well, where are you going to school? Um, what if you're going to – and baseball players too. is like, where are you going to school? What is that degree valued? Are you going to go high? If you're going to go, you know, in baseball, like top 20 rounds, get out. Go, go, go play. If you're in playing – if you're a football player and you're going to get drafted in top three rounds, Go. Go make your money. Come back. Because uh, one thing, you know, and you saw it with the Wales uh, law that is now in place that's going to restrict players from going. It's like, let players go make money. Anyways, don't don't keep them because guess what? So Reese Webb or Dan Bigger or whoever, you know, Sam Warburton wants to go to France. Guess what? That spot that he was holding down in Cardiff or at Dragons or, you know, at Ospreys, uh, now allows a young guy to come through. Yeah, and it's sort of the same. It's sort of the same with college. It's like colleges and clubs should be happy that if they're, you know, if they've got got it their system with recruiting and coaching set those 18 year olds that are looking to go play college and not go into an academy and they see a bunch of your juniors getting signed, they're going to come and play for you. You now have a destination program. Sure. So that's, I I mean, that's my, that's my philosophy there. Yeah, totally agree. So, 
Um, I think uh, we'll sign off. Uh, everyone, uh, thanks to uh, Nate Osborne. Uh, great coach, great guy, as you can tell, uh, based on this interview. And uh, signing off. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.